Section 9 of the Counter-Reformation by Adolphus Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 3. The Council of Trent. Part 2. Thus the Council, now augmented by Swiss and many other bishops, while all the chief Catholic powers except Poland were represented by ambassadors, could venture to approach those questions of dogma which the emperor would gladly have seen postponed, so long as he was still pausing on the brink of his conflict with the German Protestants. The Pope, on the contrary, while ostentatiously displaying on the frontier the auxiliary forces which he had promised to the emperor, was eager to proclaim through the council as distinctly as possible the solid unity of the Orthodox Church. The doctrine concerning original sin having been promulgated in the teeth of imperial opposition, the legates pressed for the issue of the decree concerning justification. In the midst of the debates, the Schmalkaldic War broke out, July 1546. For a time it seemed as if at Trent too the opposing interests would have proved irreconcilable. Pole, as the justification decree began to shape itself, had for reasons of health withdrawn to Padua. Madruccio and Del Monte exchanged personal insults. Pacheco accused the legates of gross chicanery, and they in their turn threatened a removal of the council to an Italian city, where in accordance with what they knew to be the papal wish, the council might deliberate without being either overawed by the emperor or menaced by his Protestant adversaries. Soon, however, the case was altered by the manifest collapse of the Protestants, notwithstanding their expectations of support from England, Denmark, and France, long before their final catastrophe in the Battle of Mühlberg, April 24, 1547. The emperor would not hear of the removal of the council to Luca, Ferrara, or any other Italian town, and in consequence, the plan of campaign at Trent was modified in order, at all events, to make the breach with the Protestants impassable. The debates on justification were eagerly pushed on, and after some further trials of finesse, the decree on the subject, which anathematized the fundamental doctrines of the Lutheran Reformation, was passed in the sixth session of the Council, 13th January, 1547. On the other hand, the decree on residence was again postponed, and a very high tone was taken toward the prelates absent from the council, the German being, of course, those principally glanced at. In the next session, 5th of March, decrees followed asserting the orthodox doctrine of the Church concerning the sacraments and baptism, and confirmation in particular, and with those was at last issued the decree concerning residence. It avoided pronouncing on the view which had been so ardently advocated by the Spanish bishops and argued by the pen of Archbishop Carranza that the duty of residence was imposed by divine law and it took care to safeguard the dispensing authority of the Roman see. Yet though at times evaded or overridden, the prohibition of pluralism contained in this decree together with certain other provisions for the bona fide execution of bishops' functions, has indisputably proved most advantageous to the vigor and vitality of the episcopacy of the Church of Rome. Paul III's attitude towards the emperor had meanwhile grown more and more suspicious. 
Partly they had become antagonists on the great question of church reorganization. Partly the emperor was becoming disposed to thwart the dynastic policy of the Farnese. Partly again the pope now thought himself able to fall back on the alliance of France. In January, Paul III, Alessandro Farnese, recalled the auxiliaries and stopped the subsidies which he had furnished to Charles V, and in March, Henry II succeeded to the French throne, whose intrigues with the German Protestants, though leaving unaffected his fanatical rigor against his own heretics at home, seemed likely to break the current of imperial success. Thus at Trent, the struggle against the Spanish bishops acquired an intense significance, and in the eighth session, 11th of March, the legates at last made use of the power entrusted to them, it was said, 18 months before, and carried against the votes of Spain the removal of the council to Bologna on the plea of an outbreak of the plague at Trent. By the emperor's desire, the Spanish bishops, plague or no plague, remained in the city. The obstinate old man, said Charles, would end by ruining the church, and sanguine Protestants might dream of a renewal of the situation of 1526 through 27. The progress of events widened the breach between the emperor and the pope. After Mühlberg, Charles V seemed irresistible, and as he would hear of no solution but a return of the council to Trent, there seemed no choice between submission and defiance. Gradually, however, it became clear that he had no wish again to drive things to extremes, and least of all to provoke anything of the nature of a schism. Moreover, France, where the Guises were now in the ascendant, was becoming more hostile to him, and the murder of the Pope's son at Piacenza, followed by the occupation of that city by Spanish troops, September 1547, nearly brought about the conclusion of a Franco-Italian league against Charles. But though French bishops arrived at Bologna, their attitude there was by no means acceptable to the Pope, and Henry II had no real intention of making war upon the emperor. Thus the latter thought himself able to take into his own hands the settlement of the religious difficulty. At the Diet of Augsburg, called the Mailed Diet because it was surrounded by the imperial soldiery, certain of the Protestant princes declared their readiness to submit to the council, while the Catholics demanded its removal back to Trent a demand urged by the emperor at both Bologna and Rome. But in the spring of 1548 came the worst news, that the Diet had passed the interim, which, without sanction or cognizance of Rome, conceded to the Protestants the marriage of priests, the use of the cup by the laity, and a relaxation of the obligations of fasting. The interim, it is true, was repudiated by the Catholic potentates, while the Protestants in many places had to be dragooned into accepting it, but the emperor continued sanguine, publishing at the Diet an edict announcing a series of church reforms, and indulged a fancy that his offered compromise would tempt England and the Scandinavian North, peradventure even the intelligent Tsar of Muscovy, back into the fold. At Rome, Paul took advantage of the consternation created by the emperor's religious coup d'etat to suggest a conference in the papal city itself of bishops from both Trent and Bologna, but the proposals soon fell to the ground, 
and the interim was referred to a congregation of cardinals including pole appointed to report on the state of the church in the meantime a commission of bishops was at the emperor's request sent into germany to superintend the working of the interim really to impede it so far as might be in the same month september the meetings of the so-called council at bologna where nothing had been accomplished formally came to an end the almost pathetic obstinacy of charles in forcing through his interim might have sufficed to warn the pope of the uselessness of further resistance but his anxiety about parma and piacenza probably contributed to make him give way in the midst of further disappointments and of fresh designs the immediate purposes of which are not altogether clear pope paul the third died fifteenth november fifteen forty nine that the most generous of the aspirations which had under his reign first found full opportunity for asserting themselves had survived his manoeuvring was shown by the favourable reception both outside and inside the conclave of the proposal that reginald pole should be his successor but pole refused to be elected by the impulsive method of adoration and in the end the farnese interest supported by the french prevailed and Cardinal del Monte was chosen. The papal government of Julius III, 1550-55, showed hardly more of temperate wisdom than had marked his conduct of the presidency at Trent, but he had the courage at the very outset to decide upon the safest course. The triumph of the House of Habsburg seemed complete. This was the period of the celebrated family compact, March 1551, which dealt with the succession to the Holy Roman Empire itself as with a chattel of the dynasty. At the Diet held at Augsburg in 1550, the majority of the Protestant estates declared themselves ready to accept the interim, and Maurice, now elector of Saxony, proffered his services to force it on the unwilling. Regardless, therefore, of the overtures and then of the menaces of France, Julius III threw over the Farnese interest and gave in his adhesion to the ecclesiastical policy of the emperor. The friends of reform may have had their doubts as to the two commissions which he immediately instituted, the one with Pole as a member to amend the method of appointment to benefices, the other to improve the system of conclaves, but after a few conditions, most of them quite in the spirit of the imperial policy had been proposed and accepted, the bull summoning the Council of Trent for the following spring was issued without further ado, November. Yet even before the Council actually reopened, 1st of May, 1551, it had become evident that the papal view of its purposes remained as widely divergent from the imperial as in the days of Paul III. The nomination of Cardinal Crescentio, a Roman by birth, as president of the Council, with two Italian prelates, Pigino of Siponto and Lipomano of Verona, by his side, was in itself ominous, and the German Protestants, upon whom the emperor pressed safe conducts at Augsburg, 1551, perceived the papal intention of treating the council as a mere continuation of that which had previously sat at Trent. Still several of them, as well as the Catholic electors, finally promised to attend. On the other hand, Henry II of France prohibited the appearance of a single French prelate and began to talk of a Gallican council. 
wroth with the Pope and on the best of terms with heretic England, he was on the eve of forming an alliance with some of the Protestant princes of the empire, fatal alike to its territorial integrity and to all schemes for the restoration of its religious unity. Alliance of Chambord, January 1552. Thus the brief series of sessions held at Trent from May 1551 to April 1552 proved in the main, although not altogether, barren of results. While explicitly asserting the doctrine of transubstantiation, the Council left open the quo modo of the Divine Presence, on which the Dominicans and the Franciscans were at issue not less than the Lutherans and the Calvinists. And though to humor the Emperor, a decision on the permissibility of administration sub utraque was adjourned. The majority of Spanish as well as of Italian bishops showed themselves averse to any concession on the subject. Nor could anyone besides the emperor found hopes upon the arrival of the ambassadors of certain Protestant princes, Brandenburg, Württemberg, and some of the free towns, and between whom and the council notwithstanding certain courtesies, an attitude of defiance was virtually maintained. Unless the assembled fathers were prepared to reconsider the decrees already passed, and to force the assent of the pope to a religious policy of quite unprecedented breadth, another deadlock was at hand, and already in the early months of 1552 the council, this time with the manifest connivance of Rome, began to thin. When in April Maurice of Saxony, now the ally of France, approached the southern frontier of the empire, the pope, whose own French war had taken a disastrous turn, had reason enough for shunning further cooperation with the emperor. The council dwindled apace in spite of the efforts of Charles V, who had never ceased to believe in his schemes. Finally, however, he could not prevent the remnants of the council from passing a decree suspending its sessions for two years, which was opposed by not more than a dozen loyal Spanish votes, April 28, 1552. Cardinal Crescentio himself, whose Roman pride had not helped to render productive the second period of the council, was not present at its close and died shortly afterwards. The possibility, if it had ever existed, of Western Christendom being reunited by the Council on a basis corresponding to that of the imperial interim had passed away to return no more. In its place, the Empire, in the religious peace of Augsburg, 1555, acknowledged the dualism which rent it asunder and accepted the principle so far as Catholics and Lutherans were concerned that each territorial authority in the empire should, with certain modifications, determine which of the two creeds should be professed by its subjects. Thus Charles V's resignation of his thrones, 1554 through 56, resulted, though far from being so intended, in a confession of his failure. While it was in progress, Julius III died, 23rd March, 1555, leaving behind him scant evidence to support the rumor of his having indulged, at all events in the last period of his reign, in ideas of church reformation. But the choice of his successor, Marcellus II, April to May 1555, shows that these ideas were not yet extinct in the sacred college, notwithstanding the simultaneous creation by Julius III of fourteen cardinals, for Cervino, had always been reckoned a member, though a moderate one, of the reforming party.
End of section nine.